Hello and welcome to Baylor Connections, a conversation series with the people shaping our future. Each week we go in-depth with Baylor leaders, professors, and more discussing important topics in higher education, research, and student life. I'm Derek Smith, and today we are talking with Brian Shaw about an exciting new project, a, a series of uh, projects, if you will, to make labs, chemistry labs, and concepts more accessible, particularly to people with blindness and visual impairment. Dr. Shaw serves as professor of chemistry and biochemistry at Baylor. He recently was awarded a $1.3 million NIH grant to fund a first-of-its-kind effort to provide tools to eliminate barriers that exclude students with blindness or visual impairment from pursuing chemistry education and lab experiences. Five-year grant in partnership with the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired will use high-tech and low-tech hacks to make science education tactile. We'll talk about what that means. There's a major paper uh, coming out a few weeks from now. And uh, this is a, a, a next step, if you will, in Dr. Shaw's research that has served families with blindness in uh, other ways as well. And projects are personal as well as professional. His son, Noah, was diagnosed as an infant with retinoblastoma, a pediatric eye cancer. Now 14, Noah is thriving despite losing sight in one eye. Past research projects include the White Eye Detector app and gelatin models to improve visualization of molecules for students. Dr. Shaw, we've had you on the program before, but it's great to have you again and uh, to talk about this. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be back, Derek. Well, obviously, you are, uh, you're, you're a busy man. We talk about the, uh, the research projects you're doing. I don't know if there's a typical week, but if we were to eavesdrop, if we were just to sit in the back of your lab and watch what's going on these days, what, what would we see? Well, you know, in science, it's tough to uh, observe a system without perturbing it. So every time I go in the lab, it, it looks like things are going, going well. Um, we, uh, we're a biochemistry lab. We work on electron transfer and protein misfolding. Um, but now we have these newer projects, uh, science inclusion, I call it or inclusion science. And um, so that involves a lot of 3D printing, uh, robotics. Um, you'd, see, you'd see several blind people in the lab. They're visiting a lot these days. And uh, some are undergrads. Some are uh, PhD scientists. And uh, so you'd see a diverse group of people. Well, the uh, the picture of what uh, what we're going for uh, through this uh, certainly. So I gave a brief description of the NIH grant and the project that really goes. You know, it's very multifaceted. How would you describe it? Well, the the grant the we're really tackling two issues here. One is data. How do you make the data, the imagery, the three D imagery, the two D imagery of chemistry and science in general? How do you make it accessible to people? Uh, who are blind, who are completely blind. And then the second part is, how do you make the lab accessible to them so that they can come in and test hypotheses and do lab work and, and be part of a chemistry lab? And so we're really going at both those uh, topics. We're trying to solve both those problems. So it's in labs, but it could be in, uh, you know, in classrooms, in, 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 prep in preparing for that. It could be any number of any number Yeah, of the labs, it could be research labs, it could be classroom labs, or it could be the classroom. Mm -hmm. How do we make all of these stunning images of science that, that not only teach us about science, but get us interested in the beginning? Mm -hmm. How do we make that accessible so that a blind person can, can visualize it? Because blind people don't have a problem visualizing things. The visual cortex is fine. 
Um, they just have to visualize things differently than us, often by tactile sensing. You know, Brian, you, you, you were telling us about the, the grant itself. You put a, a series of images uh, on, the, uh, on the grant that the NIH funded. C- could you tell us, uh, I think that paints a great picture of the, the vision, if you will, for this. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's interesting to have a story on a grant, but there is something special here. There's, this, is, this is different. And normally when you're writing a grant, the first figure is, is maybe some data or some uh, molecular structures or, or some equations. But I, I went out on a limb here when I was writing this, this beast of a proposal. And uh, the first figure was people. It was, a, it was just a line of about 12 or 13 pictures of people from the 1600s up until now who have reached the top of their craft, despite being totally blind from uh, an early age. The first person was Nicholas Saunderson, a mathematician who uh, was born in the 1600s, died in the 1700s. And uh, he was at Cambridge. He was a famous mathematician, blind from the age of one. Wow. The last image was, um, the last image was a football player and uh, long snapper at at USC who had both of his eyes removed um, when he was a kid because of retinoblastoma. His name's Jake Olson. He's a, he's a neat guy. I've talked to him. So, but, but I left one little box empty, and I had a question mark in it. And, un, and under that box I had uh, experimental chemist written because they're, they're really we – have, we haven't seen – a world-famous experimental chemist who's been blind since birth or very early on. We have, we're starting to get more theoretical chemists and chemical educators who have been blind um, from early on, but we haven't seen uh, the experimental chemistry cracked yet. And, and that was interesting to think about. What really paints a picture of the uh, of the goal that uh, you're going for through this uh, project in a, in a number of ways. Um, when you uh, when you think about that, help us understand maybe for people without a science background, why the barriers in experimental chemistry and how central is chemistry for anyone who wants to be a scientist, whether they're visually impaired or not. Yeah, so this is I, I kind of think of chemistry as ground zero in terms of inclusion and accessibility. Um, you know, as, as educators, we're always trying to mop up the last remaining puddles of implicit bias we have towards groups. But in chemistry, it's an issue of explicit bias when we're talking about blind kids. I, we, I mean, they're, they're purposely kept out of the lab, often because of safety, or historically they're, they're kept out of the lab. It's just, it's too dangerous, it's too visual, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's a problem because chemistry is the central science. So if you keep people out of chemistry, you keep them out of a lot of other different fields, biology, molecular biology, biophysics, material science. You, you even keep them out of patent law, maybe, uh, medicine. And, and so that's, if, if we can crack chemistry, if we can make the chemistry lab totally accessible to people with blindness... I think that proves a lot about what we can do in other fields. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you work with on this project a number of, of great scientists who are, are blind or visually impaired in, in some way. But, I mean, are, are, are they the exception to the rule right now? Well, the, we, we work with three Ph.D. Uh, scientists, Dr. Hobie Wedler, Dr. Mona Mankara, and Dr. Carrie Cipolla. And they're they're amazing. I mean, they're they're totally amazing people. Um, you would you would probably call them the exception. There are not many people who have earned PhDs in chemistry despite early blindness. I mean, I think you're I think you're talking about maybe fifteen or twenty people. Wow. Um, certainly, chemists lose vision later in life after they've already received their training and everything. And you know, if any chemists are listening to this, they may think to themselves, oh, that's a crazy idea to, to, to expect that a blind person can be an experimental chemist. Let's just have them do theoretical chemistry. But I tell my students, in the life of an experimental chemist, you actually only do the experiments for a short period of time. Grad school, undergrad, grad school, and then postdoc. After that, your students do all the experiments. Yeah. So you're already getting all the assistance you need. And um, so if we can make those years uh, work more easily for people with blindness, then, then we can start, um, start seeing more experimental chemists who are blind. And another thing about chemistry is we're dealing with molecules, and nobody can see molecules anyway. Their, their size is below the diffraction limit of visible light, so you literally cannot see them with your eyes. You can see a bacteria with your eyes if you look in a light microscope, not with a, mole not with a molecule or an atom. So that's all we do as chemists is dream up complex assistive technology to help us, sighted people, visualize things, molecules, that we can't see. So, so even though chemistry is kind of the worst offender when it comes to being exclusive for people with blindness, we're actually cut out to and trained to really uh, deal with it in a way, uh, in a better way than anyone else, I think. Visiting with Dr. Brian Shaw, professor of chemistry and biochemistry. And, you know, Brian, many people listening probably know your son Noah's story or at least have, have seen it in, in, in some place. But what, what has been the impact of his journey and maybe the community that, um, you know, his experience with retinoblastoma and visual impairment has brought you into contact with? Well, well yeah, this whole, so the wide eye detector was, was a direct result of, of living through that as a parent. But this, this project on accessibility and science, um, it came out of, out of his friend, actually. Um, we were having a birthday party in my backyard for Noah. And one of his friends came from Dallas. This little boy was, I think he was about four years old at the time. And he had had both of his eyes removed from uh, retinoblastoma. And it was the first bilaterally enucleated, totally blind person I had ever interacted with. And I, so I was, I was on, you know, just, I was just like high alert. I was, it was like you had a celebrity in, in the house or something. You're just watching their every move. I was watching him crawl around in my backyard on the St. Augustine grass, and um, and he'd stop every once in a while. He's crawling on all fours, and he'd stop every once in a while, and he'd pick something up. We had all sorts of stuff in the backyard, and he'd put it in his mouth. And then he'd take it out. He'd crawl around. He'd put something else in his mouth. Now, kids put everything in their mouth all the time, but I just felt like he was using his mouth to look at this in a way. He, he would pause, and it was like he was kind of thinking about it, and I thought, wow, that that kid's using his mouth maybe to visualize what he can't see. 
And that's where the first light bulb came, and we, we got into this sort of mouth model idea. And that's, that's really where, where the, this whole thing, the grand everything, that was kind of the genesis moment. Um, yeah, my backyard at a birthday party. <laughs> Well, great ideas can, can sp- be sparked anywhere, I yeah. guess. That's interesting. Yeah, good thing yeah. I didn't go to work that day. <laughs> Don't true. skip the birthday parties. <laughs> that's, well, that's good. Well, it's, uh, it's going to pay off in a, uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. It, what have you learned? I guess, you know, I think for, for most of us who have sight, we, you know, we feel things probably without really thinking about it a lot. There, there's intentionality to what, you're, to what Noah's friend was doing is, is what you're saying. How powerful is that tactile sense? Oh, it's tremendous. I can't talk too much about our paper that's coming out in a few weeks, but when we test um, blind people's ability to visualize complex data, graphs, electron micrographs versus sighted people, um, there's no difference. And it's just simply what they feel, what they feel and visualize through yep. through through their hands rather yep. than their eyes. You know, I just I don't even like the word visually impaired because. And a lot of my friends don't either. They like blind. A lot of my blind friends like to be called blind because they're not visually impaired. They can visualize things just fine. The visual cortex is terrific. They're optically impaired. They have a problem detecting light, focusing light, processing light. But as far as visualizing things, 3D things, 2D things, whatever, um, they're great. We are visiting on Baylor Connections with Brian Shaw, professor of chemistry and biochemistry at, at Baylor. So let's, uh, let's, let's take listeners inside the, the lab now here, and you're, you're, whether it's Noah or his friend or students who are working in the lab uh, right now dealing with blindness. So you got this lab, a lot of stuff <laughs> in it. Where, where, where do you begin? Where, where do you begin to make it uh, accessible? Well, so... The, the data, the imagery, the things we use to learn about science, the data we produce in our experiments, that um, needs to be made accessible. And we, we have that down. We have some quick conventional ways of doing it, swell form paper, which you print something on this special paper and you feed it through this heater and wherever the black lines are, whether it's text or a structure or whatever, it shoots up out of the plane of the page and then... You can feel it. We have our high-resolution 3D printing operation going, so we have all that down. The lab, making the lab accessible, is, is of course, much more difficult, but we have a new addition. We have this massive robot that our chairman, John Wood, the uh, Welch chair here in chemistry, uh, it's his robot, and he lets us use it. So it's sitting in our lab now. It's it's so big we had to take it apart to get it through the door. Not mm-hmm. only is it a is it a cool robot, but it's inside an airtight blast-proof glove box so that if there's any dangerous experiments going on, uh, nobody can get hurt. So this robot will weigh out powders. It'll put the powders into a vial. It'll shoot in different liquids. It'll heat and stir, and it'll, it'll do all the things that uh, you often see a chemist doing, but it'll be able to do it uh, automatically, um, and safely. And so that completely um, takes away all of the danger and the risk of handling dangerous chemicals. So um, that's, a, that's a big part of what we're doing. And then we're just dreaming up simple ways to make common tools in the lab accessible. And um, some of these we borrow from people, but some we, we create on our own. Uh, for example, that 
the touch screen on our pH meter. Touch screens are a problem, right? And you don't want to put a Braille label on any button on a touch screen because you'll kind of you'll kind of screw up the touch screen. So we found that we could just take parafilm, which is this like just ubiquitous material in all labs. It's kind of stretchy saran wrap, if you will. And you just could put that on the touch screen and it'll still work. And then you can put the Braille labels on the parafilm so you don't mm-hmm. mess up the touch screen. Um, with... Uh, with uh, graduated cylinders, you can put these little foam. These are the long. These are the super tall columns that we use to measure liquid accurately. You can put little foam buoys in them inside, and and as the water is going up and up and up and up and up and up, you can feel how high up it goes and what the volume is. That's a hack we learned from uh, Laura Hospital down at Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Hot glue. You can make anything tactile real quick with <laughs> hot glue. So there are certain tools um, in, in lab like thin layer chromatography, these little plates with dots on them. That, the dots are basically the molecules. And um, you can dab glue on, on them and feel where the spot is if you can't see it. So, we're yeah, we're going high tech. We're going low tech. Mm-hmm. We'll go wherever we need to. So everything from a robot so big you had to take it through the door to the bottle of glue that you can get at uh, at the grocery store, the uh, the art store, what have you. They'd all you, you're thinking all up and down the ladder here, I guess. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that's that's what chemists. That's what we do anyway, normally. Yeah. So you, you let you, let's talk about the uh, you know we talk about in the lab, and it makes sense if you can make it where they can maneuver around the lab and gain some sense of you know, where they are on the machinery, you know, as a touchscreen or what have you, that's, that's important. But then there's also, like you said, the, the, the data, the data visualization, uh, being able to picture the, picture the structure, whether it is, you know, you said with tactile, whether through the mouth or uh, whether it's through, through touch. So well, one area that uh, you, you talked about is lithophane, which was term probably a lot of us have heard somewhere, but uh, maybe couldn't tell you exactly what it is. So, so, so what is lithophane? Yeah, this is interesting. So um, lithophanes were probably invented um, in the 6th or 7th century in China. They were definitely invented at least in 1820s Europe, okay? But they probably go back all the way to uh, the Tang Dynasty in China. It's basically a thin um, etching or a thin engraving. And when you hold it up to the light, it looks like a picture. The thicker regions scatter more light and appear darker, and the thinner regions appear lighter. And the Chinese and the Europeans would make these lithographs or lithophanes out of thin porcelain or even certain types of wax. And so you would have kind of an engraving or, a, or an etching, a 3D graphic, if you will, that looks cool. You can look down at it, and you're like, oh, wow, look at that little carving. But then you hold it up to the light, and it looks just like, a, you know, a picture. And so after we published that paper on the tiny mouth models making 3D imagery um, accessible, we... Uh, I said, well, let's do 2D imagery, too. It's a little boring, but let's do it. Okay, we'll do the graphs, you know, the 
mass spectrum, the XY plots, electron micrographs, microscope images. Let's let's make the the boring tactile graphics, 2D graphics. And um, so Juan Lopez, an undergrad in the lab, was um, he was basically Johnny on the spot with the 3D printer, and uh, so he started making these graphics. And I said, Oh wow, that's cool. I said, Can you make them thinner? If you make them thinner, we'll use less material and it'll be cheaper and quicker. And then he made him super thin. And I was like, wow, that's like potato chip thin. <laughs> but you could feel the graphic coming up. And then I held it up to the light. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like you're seeing it on a video screen. So for like a week, I thought I had invented the lithophane. <laughs> I was like, oh, we've done it now. We're gonna, we're gonna be everywhere. Yeah. And... <laughs> And then after kind of searching online, I didn't know what a lithophane was. After searching online, I, I found out, mm, yeah, these were probably invented in the <laughs> 600s by uh, by the Chinese. Um, and uh, it's it's what you might call prior art. Yeah. And it's what the patent folks call prior art. Um, but but they hadn't been – but, but what's beautiful here is this is universal visualization. We can sit in a meeting. I can look at the lithophane and hold it up to light – and it looks exactly like the data I'd see on the computer screen. And the blind person can feel it. And everything I can see, they can feel. So it's universal data visualization. And so um, we have a paper coming out on that. But I can't talk to you about it. <laughs> will, will that be, it'll be forthcoming. You'll see it. It's forthcoming. Yes. But I, I think I can say that much because I didn't invent lithophane, So I sure. can talk about them. And it could be, you know, it can be data, it can be basic concepts. I mean, I, we're talking about the lab, and I think most of us are picturing a collegiate lab, but this could, what, go into classrooms in theory across Anywhere. America. Yeah. And not even science, the humanities, anything. Any picture you see, we can make it tactile, and we can do it in a way to where it just looks beautiful to the sighted person and is perfectly functional for the person with blindness. What role did lithophane, or what 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 impacts of this, or what parts of this do you think had the biggest impact with the NIH saying, "Hey, we want to make a significant investment"? In this? So when I was writing the NIH grant, when I was writing that NIH grant last year, we hadn't really cracked into lithophanes yet. It actually happened um, during um, what kind of after I submitted it. It really took off. And so I talked, so I actually described lithophanes in a, in a uh, supplemental report. You know, after you submit the grant, they ask, you've got anything else a few months later? And, and so um, we put it in there. And then the money, the money came in very quickly. And when we were working on the paper during the revision process, um, we needed to do some more experiments. And so we started using the money right away uh, to do those extra experiments. So... Um, yeah, this grant started in April, and the first paper is going to be out in two weeks. Wow. Yeehaw! That's fast. Nice. <laughs> NSF helped, too. So. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Visiting with Brian Shaw as we head into the final couple of minutes, you know, I want to ask, you mentioned a uh, partnership with the Texas School for the Blind and, and Visually Impaired. How are students there going to participate in this and uh, help make this even more accessible to other people? Yeah, so TSBVI, you know, there's there's – two types of students at TSBVI. There's the students that live there, um, about 150, and then there's the students who come there on the short-term programs to from all around the state to learn tricks and, and, and stuff about, about being 
being blind, some of these children maybe um, lost vision later in life, you know, maybe high school or junior high. Some maybe were, were born blind. And so we get, you know, the resident and the non-resident students the program is designed for. And um, right now, it's looking like we're going to bring them here during what's called college week for TSBVI, where kids from around the state come in on a short-term program, and then they get to go visit a college to see high schoolers, get to go visit a college to, to see what college is like. And so they're going to... Uh, they're going to be getting on the Wildcat bus and coming up to Waco. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, ninth, ninth through 12th grade. That's great. <laughs> and, that, you, and that's the plan. Yeah. We have the, the pilot, you know, the, the first pilot program is going to be in, uh, in October. And we're, we're going to see how, how well this works. Mm-hmm. And you can iterate from there. and I'm sure you'll <laughs> figure out some things. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's exciting that they can they can be here and be a part of that. And as we wind down, I just to close, I want to ask you know this is a project that still seems like it's it's growing. There's more that can come uh, come from it. What are you most excited about as you sort of look ahead to where this could where this could lead? Well, this is just the beginning. Um, what we really want to do is, uh, I mean, I want to create like I want to create like a Justice League of Science. And where it's instead of special powers, it's um, maybe it's special needs. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And not just blindness, but um, autism, downs, um, mobility issues. I want to want to make a lab, a universal lab that works for everyone, because I, th- I think science is a great place for um, all people, the lab. I think there's a place for everyone in lab. This past semester, I, I was doing, uh, I was, I was being the assistant for a blind student during his analytical chemistry lab every Thursday, uh, from two to six. And so I would help him. I would go to lab, help him weigh stuff out, read instruments, and, you know, I thought, well, lots of people could do this. I mean, there's, there's, you know, him combined with somebody else. Maybe somebody with Down syndrome, or, or, or a mob- or a mobility issue. Maybe tetra- a tetraplegic person. We we can we can combine everybody and then work in a team. And and there's there's a place and a project, and 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 science for everyone. So, I kind of I kind of want to do that. <laughs> I want to mm-hmm. want to grow it and and get it you know bigger, um, but. I hope our work inspires uh, a young person with blindness to get into experimental chemistry, get an academic job, and uh, make make huge contributions and win big awards. <laughs> Maybe someday when you retire, they'll take over your uh, your spot here yeah. at Baylor. That'd be great. Well, that's that's really a uh, that's really a powerful and compelling vision, and we appreciate that and look forward to seeing more. And you know, Brian, I'll say as someone, my dad's been blind since I was three years old. This really resonates with me. It's amazing to see what you're uh, doing. So I appreciate you doing that and coming on to share with us today. Thanks, Derek. Thank you very much. Dr. Brian Shaw, professor of chemistry and biochemistry, our guest today on Baylor Connections. I'm Derek Smith. A reminder, you can hear this and other programs online, baylor.edu slash connections. You can subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for joining us here on Baylor Connections. Baylor Connections.